Welcome back. I'm Brian, and this is my Bible study podcast. So we're closing out our worldly Hevel Joy in Christ study today. It's been a study about identity and where we find joy. Specifically, we've been working through the books of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament and Philippians in the New Testament. It's been a longer study than I initially expected it to be, but we've made it so far. Today we're going to cover the highlights of Philippians chapter 4. We're going to talk through the themes that reoccur throughout the book. We're going to focus on these similar underlying messages of both Ecclesiastes and Philippians. Then hopefully we're going to hyperlink both books directly to the person and work of Jesus Christ. In the final chapter of the book of Philippians, it provides a call for all believers to live unified by the gospel instead of divided by our own worldly preferences. It provides a call for us to rejoice. It speaks into how we should deal with worries and anxieties through trust and prayerfulness. It speaks to a contentment that should be rooted in our identity, a contentment that we struggle to find in our natural state a contentment that involves humbly accepting our own limitations, and a contentment that, as we learn, we grow in and we seek out more and more. The chapter speaks to knowledge and wisdom and what is viewed as pleasing obedience to God's word. And then it ends with the importance that all people place their faith in and worship Jesus our Savior, with Paul even underlining that despite his imprisonment and his persecution by Caesar, members of Caesar's own household have come to faith in Christ. Just like the book of Ecclesiastes, the underlying message is about fearing, loving, and trusting in a sovereign God. It is about seeking to understand the wisdom and truth of God's word, and then about living a life that glorifies God and can rejoice in who God is, what God has done, and in what God has promised to do for his people. In short, it's about believing in the truth of the gospel, acknowledging the power of the gospel, and then being transformed by the implications of the gospel. Let's dive in. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, My joy and my crown stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Eudia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. So these first three verses are first and foremost a reminder of who the believers in Philippi are. They are brothers and sisters in Christ, of Paul, and of each other. The conjectures that these two ladies mentioned were having some sort of a disagreement. And I guess it would have been a high-profile one, high-profile at least enough, for Paul to know about it. And Paul, who apparently knew them well enough to say that they contended at his side in the cause of the gospel is telling them to move forward in unity instead of contention. Paul is also calling the other members of the church to walk alongside them. So remember, this would have been a letter that got read and reread out loud to the congregation. The intent of this section wasn't to call out an internal church conflict in a gossipy or a slanderous kind of way, but rather in an encouraging and discipleship opportunity sort of way. So walk with those who are in conflict. Help them. 
encourage them to contend for the gospel instead of against each other. Strive forward together. So this is the theme of unity. And that theme is recognized throughout the entire book of Philippians. Philippians 1.27 includes a call to strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. Philippians chapter 2, it actually starts, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Then Philippians 3.17 starts, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Look, we can disagree. We can have differing opinions about certain things. We can have certain blind spots that prevent us from understanding one another's viewpoints. And believe it or not, all of us can be wrong about some things from time to time. But this, this is a call for togetherness by the body of faith. Not because we agree on everything, but because we should be able to find common ground on the most important thing. This is a word for our day-to-day, right? Like, just listen to some of the things called out in the first three verses of this chapter. Stand firm in the Lord. Find common ground in who God is. Be of the same mind. Keep front and center our faith and the humility and with humility that we are called to follow. A faith where Jesus should be the cornerstone not ourselves. Then help those who might be struggling with unity, not in a condescending or an arrogant way. Lean in, seek to understand, to show love and humility toward them, and then gently encourage and correct them if necessary, which by the way means that we need to be willing to receive correction also. Both the books of Ecclesiastes and Philippians call us toward obedience to God. Well, part of obedience to God and being a servant of Christ Jesus involves setting aside our own personal freedoms and our own preferences and serving and loving others also. It goes back to that discipleship thing. We are called to meet people where they're at and to walk with them through their faith journey. Just to be clear, that involves being willing to meet all types of believers where they are, not just the ones that you like or the ones that you feel comfortable around. Use Paul as an example Use Jesus as the plumb line and answer the call to unity. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 5. So again, Paul is coming back to the reoccurring theme of this letter. Rejoice in the Lord, or find joy in God. The NLT says, always be full of joy in the Lord. The word for rejoice, it usually shows up at the start of letters, a sort of a salutation or a greeting. But Paul uses the word nine times in this letter to the church at Philippi. He wants joy to be underlined. Joy in God the Father, joy in the Spirit, joy in Jesus, joy in each other, joy in the gifts that God has provided us with, joy in the promises that God has given us, you know, just joy. And then verse 5, it underlines another of those virtuous traits that we're called to display and to exhibit. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Some other translations might use words like moderation, graciousness, considerateness, reasonableness, or our gentle spirit. 
So let me just underline that. In light of the current environment that Christians find themselves occupying, Christians should be seen by others as gracious, gentle, considerate, and reasonable. I pray that we can meditate on that and walk with each other to better display these traits to each other and the world. So the end of the verse answers both the why and the how. Why should we display these traits? How can we possibly be equipped to show others those traits? Well, the Lord is at hand. The phrase is at hand or is near. In Greek, it can carry two meanings, both of which can be very relevant to the passage. At hand can mean near, like display these traits because the Lord is near to us. In a God is with us, where two or three or more are gathered, I am there sort of way. But it can also mean an event that is imminent or about to come to pass. Like display these traits because the Lord's coming is imminent. In a Jesus is coming back in glory to judge everybody and the time is fast approaching sort of way. So the idea of God coming back in judgment, it would also hyperlink it to the last few verses of Ecclesiastes, where readers are encouraged toward obedience, and then they're reminded that judgment is a real thing that is coming. So I'm not a Greek scholar enough to know if the exact phrasing prefers one meaning over the other, but I know that I can see both meanings to be weighty. Either meaning, or both meanings, they should be impactful to believers and they should affect us. We should like to be transformed because God is with us now and because God is returning soon. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. So I would said in the intro that this chapter speaks to how we should deal with worries and anxieties, and that we should deal with them through trust and prayerfulness. Matt Chandler states that fear is legitimate for the vulnerable, and pain is a natural consequence of being mortal, but that worry, that's a choice made in mistrust. So read that again. Worry is a choice made in mistrust. It's kind of a harsh statement, but it's true. This is probably a terrible illustration, but when we are a passenger in a car, whether we are nervous or anxious about arriving at our destination, That depends on how much we trust the driver, right? Like when I get on a roller coaster, I'm not terrified that the cart's going to fly off. That's because I trust engineers and testers, the ones that designed and serviced the roller coaster. When we, myself included, step through life worried about how events are unfolding or how they could unfold, that's an issue of me not trusting who is in control of those events. Recognizing the sovereignty of God, that involves trusting that he is actually sovereign and that he will navigate me through to the promised land, that I will arrive at my destination. Notice that that's not a guarantee that the road's going to be smooth, that we won't have adversity and harshness. It's just a guarantee that we will get to our promised endpoint. And Paul knows this is a struggle here in a fallen world. He doesn't expect this trust to just happen. He knows that letting go of worries and anxieties, that's against our natural tendencies. So what does he instruct us to do? Well, the NIT version translates verse 6, Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. 
tell God what you need, and thank him for all that he has done. Look, prayer creates connection. It creates relationship. It says, God, I'm struggling with this, and I know that I shouldn't be. Help me trust you. Help me rely on you. Help me be reminded of everything you've done for me and of everything that you have promised to me. Like prayer helps us let go of what we might be carrying. Because then verse 7 says, The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Prayer creates relationship, and it creates peace. And the peace of God that transcends everything else. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. So Paul sets up the conclusion of this letter by doing what he does in a number of his other letters. He sort of rattles off a list of things to focus on, things to strive for, good godly characteristics. Thomas Schreiner says that Paul regularly traces out for readers what is pleasing to God in vice and virtue lists. Well, he does it here again. What should you ponder about instead of worrying? What is noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. Look, in short, ponder Jesus. Like when you think about these things, you should think about Christ. And when you are thinking about Christ, you should think about these things. Matt Chandler says that it's a circular thing. I'll add that it should spiral you upward toward obedience and praise and worship. Then, just like in the book of Ecclesiastes, Paul says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. He's not saying, follow me because I have great personal wisdom. No, he's saying, as Solomon was saying in Ecclesiastes, God has granted me insight into God's wisdom and God's truth. Follow me in applying the wisdom of God in your lives. It's a continuation of the last section about finding peace in the midst of worry or anxiety. Communicate with God and strive to live obediently to God. These are two ways to assist us in letting go of the worries of this world, of the hevel of this world that makes things seem so meaningless and futile, to steal a couple words from the book of Ecclesiastes. And then Paul closes this passage at the same place that he closed the last one, with the hope and encouragement of the peace of God being with us. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Philippians chapter 4, verses 9 through 13. So not only is this chapter recapping themes from the rest of the book, but they're all kind of building on each other. 
Remember, all these passages are in context of one another. So unity, trust, peace, now contentment, they're all coupled. We can feel the wave kind of building here. We'll get to Paul's contentment, but verses 9 through 20, they also cover how the Corinthians lived out their faith. They did it by providing and caring for Paul, even when nobody else did. Paul makes it clear that this obedient life of faith, it's going to be a credit to the Corinthians. Again, to tie Philippians to Ecclesiastes, the life focused on obedience to God, it's going to provide greater reward in the end than a life focused on worldly things. And in that context, we can chat about verses 11 through 13. Verse 13 is probably one of those verses from Paul that's most used out of context. We see something like, I can do all things through Christ on bumper stickers and coffee mugs and athletic apparel. But in context, this verse isn't about accomplishing miracles on your own or about being able to achieve our worldly dreams. It's actually about contentment. It's about living contently and setting aside some of our own selfish desires in order to glorify God and to glorify him where we are at. Praise God in what you have been gifted with. Understand the blessings that you've been graced with. Know that God has given you what you have for a specific purpose. You can rest content that you are loved and you are known and you are created and you are blessed by God. Here's the thing. Contentment is rooted in identity. When we wrestle with contentment issues, we're actually wrestling with identity issues. Wrestling with a mistrust of what God has graciously gifted us with and what Christ has sacrificially accomplished for us. So instead of fighting that and trying to be content with who we think we should be, with all the worldly pursuits that Solomon identifies in Ecclesiastes as chasing after the wind, instead of that, constant battle against discontentment. God is calling us to actually find contentment by resting securely in Christ. We should find identity in Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. We should rejoice in Christ. We should rest in Christ. And that's how you overcome the temptations and the worries and the anxieties of this world and how you find lasting contentment. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Philippians chapter 4, verses 21 through 23. So here we go. The last few verses of this long, long study that we've been journeying through. And they are a call toward unity and togetherness and encouragement. By the way, Paul makes sure to add in there that even the believers who belong to Caesar's household send their greetings. So Paul is in prison in Rome, where evangelism and the Christian faith, they're basically persecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And Paul's mentioned that his imprisonment has actually opened doors for him to evangelize and to witness to his oppressors including apparently some Christians who, or some people who are now Christians who reside in the houses of Roman rulers. So that's a pretty cool testimony. It's also, by the way, a pretty good narrative about being content and in finding joy in where God has placed you right now. Paul ended up in a prison cell, and that prison cell ended up being a great opportunity for him to witness to others. All right, so what's the tagline at the end of this study? Where has all of this talk about identity led us? 
Well, because of identity in Christ, we can rejoice. And because of our shared identities together in Christ, we can rejoice together. And then because of who our identity resides in, we can worship and glorify God in all the circumstances that we are presented with in this life. So thanks for listening. Unless otherwise noted, all Bible verses were from the New International Version, or NIV translation, copyright 2011 by Biblica Inc. Next episode, I think we're going to be diving into a psalm. Until then, though, I love y'all.